everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing this morning, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thank you. Great. Well, we we have a really cool show today, I think, because we're joined by one of uh, Sacramento's most well-known and long-standing Democratic strategists and uh, communicators, Gary South, who's going to join us today to talk a little bit about... Uh, the epic throwdown that's coming up sometime between California Governor Gavin Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Gary, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Happy to. I'm great. Thank you. Looking great. forward to discussing this subject of the day. Well, I, I and I'll be honest, it seems a little silly. This whole thing seems a little silly to me, but but you know, maybe you have some perspective that you can offer to some cynical old scribe like me <laughs> and, and make more sense of this. What I really, I guess the the first thing that comes to my mind is how does this benefit uh, Gavin Newsom? And before I even let you answer that, we should be clear, the the details are not in yet. Uh, Ron DeSantis said, I I think on Fox News a couple of days ago, okay, that the offer from Gavin Newsom has been he would debate Ron DeSantis on Fox News. He gave some dates possible dates. We're looking at sometime in November, three possible sites, three different states, I believe, uh, Georgia, Nevada, and I don't remember the third one. Um, Gary, maybe you'll remember. Uh, but all those details are yet to be worked out. But but Santa said, sure, let's go for it. Let's do it. So we're, we're, we're going to presume that this will actually happen. So that's our working premise here. <laughs> so now, Gary, now let me ask you the question. Um, why? Why are we doing this? Well, let me give you a couple of perspectives. You're a cynical journalist. I'm a cynical political consultant. So (laughs) we're on the same plane, at least in terms of cynicism. Um, You know, in my business, we have a saying that both of you have probably heard, which is punching down. And what what we mean by that is that when you have a candidate running for anything, the, the last thing you want is for that candidate to get into a pissing match with somebody down the ladder. In other words, uh, you know, in, in my particular case, um, I've always told my candidates never, ever respond to anything that the consultant for the other candidate says to, about you, okay, because it just diminishes you and, and encourages him. And I've used that principle <laughs> in many of the campaigns that I've done to get under the skin of candidates that were on the other side. But, you know, in this case, I can see the advantages of it for Gavin Newsom. I mean, he has literally taken the point out there in terms of fighting back against the whole mega agenda and the woke the woke stuff and all of that. What I don't see is what advantages it has for Ron DeSantis. I mean, guys, this would be like a good analogy would be like a Democratic governor running for a Democrat running for governor of California agreeing to a public debate with the Republican mayor of a city in California. I mean, what advantage? It just diminishes your status and your standing as a candidate running for whatever office you're running for. So I don't, I don't, you know, I, I've never met DeSantis. Um, don't have a very high opinion of him. I mean, I think he's a dour, drab, dumpy little man. And, you know, if charisma was electricity, he wouldn't have enough to light a 50-watt bulb. 
but uh, I think basically what got the best of him here is his, is his machismo. It's like, hey, I've been challenged by Gavin Newsom on Fox News for a debate, and by God, you know, I'm not going to let anybody think I'm a wimp or a weenie, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. And by the way, this wouldn't be the first bad idea that he's that he's acted upon, as as you've been if you've been following his his now flagging and sagging campaign. There's the 500 pound gorilla in the room that we're not talking about. Is that he's running against someone that is trouncing him in the polls? I mean, there was a moment where DeSantis was, mm-hmm. you know, maybe either leading or close. In any case, that moment is gone. His campaign has has shed a lot of staff. I, I think the donations are drying up and there's a fairly good possibility that the person he's running against for the Republican nomination could be at the least involved in a number of trials, corruption trials at the time of you think, campaign. or he could even be in jail in, in theory, you know, or, you know, he could have been declared completely innocent um, or flying into exile. Yeah. So who knows what's so, he can't really debate President Trump, or at least he's probably not going to. I don't even know that Trump's going to mm. dig into that. So he does have to debate somebody. So there is, I think this is a unique situation. It's not a normal, by any means, a normal campaign. And I, I think that that gives DeSantis a limited number of options of which debating Gavin Newsom is one. Because certainly Joe Biden is not going to debate him. Well, <clears throat> Yes, but again, it's a standing problem, the way I see it. Um, I think that if this happens, and if it happens on Fox, there will be a a lot of Fox viewers, given who they are and what they are, that will get off on this because they will think, no matter how well Gavin Newsom performs, they will think, oh, he he was owning the libs. You know, he was owning the libs. He, He got Gavin Newsom to agree to debate. But but in the larger in the larger scheme of things, I just don't see how it benefits a candidate for president to be debating a governor, any governor of any state. And, you know, one of the things that that we in this political consulting world always deal with with candidates is because candidates are human beings. I mean, sometimes they don't seem like it, but they are at core human beings, and they have all the foibles and the insecurities and the ego problems that a typical person has, but magnified much larger because they're on, they're on the public, they're on the public stage. And, you know, I couldn't even, I could, I could fill this program with instances where I've stopped my candidates from doing stupid things that they shouldn't, that they shouldn't have been doing. That's an episode we're doing in the future, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. There, right, right away, that's my first thought, Tim. Yeah. We need to have that discussion for sure. Yes. Uh, but, you know, again, going back to my opening comments about not punching down, you know, just here in California, I've had two candidates for governor literally hold press conferences to denounce me, me, the consultant of the other candidate by name. Uh, one was Dick Reardon in the in the 2002 gubernatorial primary, where he held a press conference after I'd gone after him on the abortion thing, and we were killing him on his two you know incompatible positions on abortion. Held a press conference downtown at his Greasy Spoon restaurant, the the pantry uh, wouldn't let me in. He had two big burly you know private security people you know with their arms folded in front of wouldn't let me in. But 
he gets in and he's, you know, pounding on the podium, you know, Gary South is a bad man. Gary South is a bad man and compared me to Mussolini. I mean, go, go figure. And then, and then in the 2006 uh, uh, gubernatorial democratic primary, Phil Angelides had a press conference at the state democratic convention, again, where I was barred, where he called me the king of mean, the king of mean, because of the things I was saying about him. So wait, so you were barred from the state democratic? How did that happen? Well, he had a private, he had a private conference room that, that, that his, in the convention center in Sacramento, that his campaign had, had rented, but they, they wouldn't let me in. But anyway, I could hear what was going on. But the point is, it just never benefits a candidate to be attacking or engaging with someone on a lesser plane than the campaign in which they're running. Um, it's just a get. It's just a role of of of. Uh, it's just a role that I think campaign consultants constantly urge on their candidates. But one other thing I will say, guys, about DeSantis is. You know, for all practical purposes, his wife is running the campaign. And it's never a good thing to have your wife or, in the case of Kamala Harris, your sister running a campaign, particularly for president. And there's a reason for that. When you have someone, a spouse, you have a sister, you have a brother-in-law, running your campaign, essentially, no matter what their title is, you know that they're the they're the ones who, you know, do the pillow talk at night and 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 they're the ones who have the close personal familial relationship with a candidate. The problem with that is that the campaign staff and the campaign consultants feel very inhibited going to that person and talking to them about the candidate and bringing bad news to them about the candidate that you know he did he screwed this up, he can't say this, he can't do it that way because the person who's up there, the wife, the sister, is simply too close, is too vested in the candidate to allow the staff and the consultants to really feel comfortable and confident that they can go to that person and say, I think we're screwing up here big time and we've got to stop this. We've got to start doing that. So it's very clear based upon all the reportage that we've we've seen about the DeSantis campaign. You see his wife with him every place. I mean, it's um, and it's very clear that she is the driving force in that campaign, just like she has been in his gubernatorial campaigns, by the way, from what I understand. And that's a huge mistake. Uh, when you have a close relative running your campaign, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy clearly succeeded in 1960 <laughs> running, running JFK's campaign. And so there are examples where this has worked. But in many more cases, in my, in my career at least, it's been a huge mistake to put a personal, per, uh, an immediate family member in charge of your campaign for the reason that I just gave you. And and I don't know how this decision was made. I don't know whether his wife had any role in it or not. I just think it's basically machismo. You know, I've been I've been challenged. You know, the gauntlet has been thrown down. And and you know, Gavin Newsom challenged me to come out beside behind the bar in the alley and have a fight. And so I can't resist doing it because I'll be looked at as a weenie. I know that's the only that's the best. That's the best interpretation I can come up with. That's the thing to me. This this seems very personal. And, you know, I think, uh, and, and you know this far better than I do. I mean, at some point, we're, as you know, we're all human and we tend to react, especially when people say things about us that we don't like or what. But it does seem to be 
really kind of poor political thinking for to me on both ends because for for as you noted it, and I completely agree it's definitely it's absolutely punching down I I question why Newsom would give DeSantis the platform I really do I mean I think probably uh, there's there's a question as to whether or not uh, DeSantis is going to flame out all on his own I, it seems to me all all Newsom is doing is is elevating a guy who's trying his hardest to drown in the middle of the ocean as is, number one. But I also wonder, you know, Newsom has faced a lot of criticism for being out of the state and maybe not focusing quite as much on things that are critical issues right here in California right now. This would seem to fuel those critics here right here in California. You know, why are you going out and debating this guy? You're not even, you're not in theory actually even running for president. And even if you are right now, you wouldn't be running against him, right? We're not even in primaries. So why spend this energy? What, unless, I don't know, and you tell me, maybe there's a, there's a motivation that we're, that I'm not, I'm alluding to that I'm, that uh, maybe you'll, you'll say more concretely because he's been denying that he's running for president, right? But this sure seems like something you would do if you're actually going to run for president, because why else put yourself in the position to get all but this criticism? On. But let's be honest. If you are running for any political office beyond, say, school board, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I might be president someday. You know, you, it's just the way candidates are wired. And Gary will be able to speak to that more than I am. But, you know, I think Newsom is well aware that there is a possibility that there could be an open, open seat. I mean, you know, Biden is quite old. He seems to be in good health. I mean, I just saw him ride his bike the other day. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's actually going to be running in 2024. That would probably put Kamala Harris in the catbird seat. And I'm sure that if it was the option of running against Kamala Harris versus running against sitting president, Governor Newsom just might throw his hat in the ring. So I think, you know, in the back of his head, he may be saying, I'm not running for president now. And I'm sure he's not because he's made it very clear that he's supporting Biden in his reelection. Uh, and from what I've read, Biden's team is actually enthusiastic about this, mm -hmm. uh, this debate, by the way. But I do think that he's always like, just on the off chance that 2024 comes open, this will raise my profile. But Gary can speak to that. Well, more. <laughs> I wrote a, I wrote an op-ed for the cat for the uh, Sacramento Bee a few months ago putting into larger context what I thought Newsom was up to. And I'll restate it uh, on this show. There's no question that any governor of California, when they look in the mirror in the morning, sees a president staring back at them. I mean, it's just it's just a fact. I mean, for Pete Wilson, for Christ's sake, ran for president. I mean, the most kind of nondescript little, you know, man until, until DeSantis maybe came along. But, but the point is that Democrats... And I can say this authoritatively, Democrats across the across the country have been frustrated and and a little pissed off that there hasn't been a more aggressive democratic counterattack against all this wokeism crap and the mega stuff that goes on every single day and the right wing media and all of that. And, you know, with all due respect to Joe Biden, I voted for him in, in 2020. I'll vote for him again. I think he's been a good president. But let's face it, guys, the guy is steeped in 50 years of the false bonhomie of the United States Senate, right? 
where, where you get up and, you know, my good friend from Wyoming, and he is my good friend, even though we disagree, he's my good friend. And, you know, he, he bless his heart. He's just not a gut fighter in that regard. And, and so the president of the United States who ought to be the point on this just is not sort of constitutionally or experientially equipped in the minds of a lot of Democrats to be the one going after and be the and to be the real counterpoint against all of this mega stuff that is thrown at us every single day. And, you know, Kamala Harris, because a vice president generally has the role of attack dog. I mean, you remember people like Spiro Agnew and, and Dick Cheney and, and others the, the the vice president generally has the the role of being the attack dog, so the president doesn't have to do it. But in Kamala Harris's case, again, bless her heart, she just doesn't have the standing and doesn't have the skills to do it. I mean, you see, you've seen the polling where she's got the lowest approval rating of any you know vice president in the last thousand years, basically. So she's really not equipped to do it. And then you know, here's the big question I have. We have a Democratic national chairman named Jamie Harrison, right, from South Carolina, ran against Lindsey Graham, black black man, uh, who's been completely absent in this fight. Have you seen him on the Sunday shows? Have you seen anything quoted from Jamie Harrison? Because after the vice president, historically speaking, the next level of attack comes from the chairman, the chair of the party. And you've seen that. You've seen You've seen McDaniel do that on the Republican side. I mean, even when Trump was was president. And so we we kind of the, the three top actors we have on the Democratic side have really not stepped up to the plate, either because they don't want to or they don't have the skills or they don't have the standing to really be an effective counterattacker. And that's really where I think Newsom deserves some credit for stepping into the breach. Although is it possible that they don't want to elevate uh they don't want to elevate DeSantis. And, you know, I think uh, somebody said, like, let him drown out in the ocean. He's doing fine on his own. And uh, by answering his charges and, and taking him on, they're sort of making him seem like a front runner, whereas President Trump is clearly the front runner. Do you think it's possible that they're, they've made a decision like, hey, we're just going to leave. We're just going to ignore DeSantis because... Yeah, but Tim, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't relate this just to DeSantis. I'm talking about a whole every every single mega aspect across the board that we get shoved in our face every single day on social media, Fox News, you name it. I'm talking about the whole gamut of stuff, not just Ron DeSantis. And we Democrats, in my humble opinion, have been remiss in not taking this stuff on much more, much more directly than we have. And uh, I think that Newsom, to his credit, has stepped into the breach. And by the way, you know, I ran Gavin Newsom's first campaign for governor, as you guys probably know, in 2008, 2009, before he before he dropped out. And I know the guy really, really well. And I will tell you this. He is, despite what anyone might think of him, you know, whether he, you know, he, he struts too much or he talks too much or whatever. He is a he is a very, very, very smart guy. He has a mind like a steel trap. And as you know, he is severely handicapped in the sense that he's dyslexic and has been since he was a kid. And one of the things I found out about him in that first gubernatorial campaign was that it is very laborious for him to read because he's dyslexic. And he 
he spends hours and hours reading a briefing book that, you know, somebody else would take 20 minutes to read. But the upside of that is that once, once a fact enters his cranium, it never leaves. And it's, it's never, it's always well-organized and he can pull it out at, at a minute's notice. If you've seen his budget briefings, I mean, generally a, a governor, and I work for one, as you know, Generally, when a governor does their state, their, their releases their state budget, they've got their budget director up there. They've got their deputy budget director up there. They've got their director of finance up there. And Newsom does it all by himself for an hour and 40 minutes. And he knows every single page in that budget book. So to debate the guy, and if you saw the kind of the sorry, sad sack debate, the one debate he had with, with Senator Brian Dolly, who was his, his, his Republican opponent in the, in the 2022 governor's race, I mean, he made the guy look like a fool because he just has a command of the facts and he has a command of the language that is very, very impressive. I mean, some people think he's too verbose and, you know, he's 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 agreed with that. But but, you know, I mean, debating the guy is a fool's errand, in my view. And well, and you could really that was on full display when he was interviewed. on Absolutely. And. I'm pretty familiar with watching the governor press conferences, et cetera. So I'm used to him just kind of pulling these facts out of thin air and being right. I mean, I'm not saying pulling thin out, out of them the thin air. I'm not saying he's making them up. I'm saying he just really remembers things uh, in a way that I don't, for example. Oh, it's... And, you know, he really was swatting down the interviewer and he was, you know, his numbers were correct. He just has all this stuff internalized in a way that is uh -huh. very unique, uh, to my experience and he's got a very good command of that and you're right i i sort of pity anyone that has to debate him because that's a unique feature it is indeed well, i'll, I'll say ahead. this to gary I, to your point i think uh ron DeSantis. i i don't know what fully uh defines dynamic but ron DeSantis is the opposite of that if and um, you know, I, re I remember being around him one time uh, very briefly in, in uh, Washington, D.C. at a governor's event, and I was just struck by several things about him. One, he never went anywhere without this entourage of these uh, big burly guys uh, who formed a, a circle around him. And he's the only, you know, most of the governors are there. They've got their comms person and maybe the alleged director or somebody with them. You know, they're wandering the halls of these of these events. Those, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He never went anywhere without this entourage as bodyguard contingent and was really weird. He looked more like Erdogan or, or, you know, uh, Berlusconi or something, you know, uh, than, than the governor of Florida. So that, that was a weird thing. But, and then, but then when he talks, you know, Newsom has great speaking skills. Nobody can deny that he is, you know, yes, he's a little verbose. Once he gets going, you kind of, you know, you want to give him the wrap it up, but sometimes but but he's got a great voice and he you know he's got a cadence that's all his it's very unique and it works DeSantis I'm just going to be real straight here he sounds like somebody who ought to be working on your tractor I'm just sorry but that is the reality of it I'm not, I'm not hey, that has an appeal you got to forget remember there's people out there from like you know from Auburn California all the way to Chicago that probably like that you know, and I get it. And that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm not I don't want to criticize it on on that level. I'm just saying if the two of them debating, it's going to it's going to be an unfair fight. <laughs> so There's no doubt I think it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning. Why punch down? It doesn't seem to be any real value to it.
You know, you, you talked about him being a tractor repair person. I mean, I the the, the corollary or the analogy that I've that I've used a couple of times is that if the guy was a used car salesman, he wouldn't even be a very good used car salesman because he's not enough of a glad hander. He's not enough. He doesn't have enough uh, ability to go out and really meet people and ingratiate himself to people to sell used cars. I mean, let alone selling himself as a candidate for president. I mean, I don't mean to be too, you know, ad hominem here, but he just doesn't have the skills. And, you know, I mean, I've worked for candidates for various different levels of government, president, Senate, governor, uh, and others who really were, were energized by campaigning. I mean, if you think about, you think about people like Hubert Humphrey, you think about people like Bill Clinton, you think about people like Willie Brown, right? Who, who really got energized by going out and campaigning. I mean, they lived for this stuff. It got their adrenaline going. And then I've had other candidates, not to mention any particular names, who were enervated by campaigning, who didn't like it, who who had to do deep breathing exercises before they went out into a crowd because, because they, they disliked it so much. And they taught themselves to do it. They taught themselves out of force of will to go out and do it because they knew you had to kiss babies and shake people's hands and pat them on the back and all that. But they, they didn't like it and they weren't very good at it. And it was pretty obvious to people that they weren't very good at it. I mean, DeSantis is in that second category. It's just obvious. And uh, I, I just don't know what skills he brings as a candidate to this race. And I think that part of his deficiency as a candidate, as witnessed in his in his decline and slide in the polls, is that people are just not seeing much out of him. I mean, I just don't think he's got the the skills. And, you know, the other thing, too, guys, that that is problematic for a candidate running for president and doing it badly is the is the side effect it has in your own home state. I mean, we all remember Alan Cranston. I mean, for those of us on this call, we do remember Alan Cranston, God, God, God rest his soul. But, you know, he took a stab at running for president, remember? <laughs> and did it very badly as, as could probably be predicted. He didn't have, I mean, and, and his standing back in California, he got out of the race obviously, but his standing back in California never recovered. and you know, he decided not to run again in, in 1992. And and even Pete Wilson, when Pete Wilson was reelected, you know, by 15 points in 1994, and then decided that he was going to run for president on the Republican side, and went out and did it badly. If you go back and track the, 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 the polling and the public opinion polling, his, his, his standing never really recovered either with the people of California, because they don't like they don't like a native son going out and basically making a fool of themselves. And so you have to wonder when all this is over with, Ron DeSantis is not going to be the nominee. He's not going to be president. He's going to have to put his tail between his legs and, and, and go back to Florida, where already the polling in Florida shows that, that Trump would, would kick his rear end if the election were held today. The primary was held today in Florida. Let me you know, ask you to follow up on that, because I, this is a, I really wonder the potential, not just to, to take DeSantis out fully out of this campaign, which I think is going to happen regardless. But I really do wonder, because since he has become the face of all of, as you know, to the anti-wokeness and all, and let's be real, some of the things we're seeing in Florida, I mean, there's a reason that Gavin Newsom has has taken on this fight and, and others. And, and I think you're right. I think Democrats across the country have been itching for somebody to stand up 
Indeed. And vocally and intelligently refute some of this nonsense that we're Absolutely. seeing in some of these states like Florida. And I'm sorry, if you are one of the people that thinks there was any benefit whatsoever to slavery, then yes, that's nonsense. We're going to call that nonsense <laughs> right up here, right up front. And I wonder if the risk to me, I think, for the entire MAGA movement is if Newsom takes DeSantis apart, how much does that take apart the other non-Tim Scotts who are in this campaign? And not, and it's not going to affect the MAGA supporters and the hard, the hardcore Republican supporters. But you don't win with just your base. You know this better than anybody. You don't win with just your base. You have to have the independence, and you have to maybe even have some spillover from the other side to win a national, a presidential election. I wonder about the potential for for DeSantis getting so torn apart here that he actually takes down other candidates who are trying to fill the same space he is. Is that is that a reasonable concern? Well, that's a good point, uh, Rich. I don't know. I haven't given that much thought. I do think that um, one of the positive things that I see going on here, if you've been following the his, the the the, uh, the coverage of Florida, is that all of his actions in Florida have have resulted in some flight out of Florida. I mean, you've had national conventions that were scheduled to be in Florida that are pulled out of Florida because they don't want to be there. Um, Disney has announced that they're not going to put a billion dollar investment into, into Florida. Uh, and so there, there is some there is some evidence, by the way, that there's there's intellectual flight out of Florida where you have, you know, college professors at Florida universities who are trying to who are trying to go to Minnesota or whatever. So this mega nonsense, although it's infuriating to us Democrats, and it's it is nonsense. I mean, it's it's just total crap. Um, but tell us how you really feel, Gary. <laughs> there's there's a price there's a price for these these mega characters to pay. I think in their home states for going down that path. And you know, DeSantis attacking Disney <laughs> would be the equivalent of a governor of California going hog wild against the entertainment industry located down here in, in Hollywood. I mean, we have Disneyland too, but it's not as much of a factor in a state this big as Disney you know, is in Florida. But to attack the iconic business in your own state and try to take it over and try to squash it and bring legal actions and all of that is, is, is insanity. I mean, I've worked for two sitting governors of different states. And you know, the one thing that governors are are expected to do by the people in those states is to protect their business base. And uh, even Democrats, you know, who are very liberal on social issues and who want the governor to to uh, be very heavily involved in the social issue agenda, you know, they they don't they don't want businesses leaving their state. And so what he's doing is just incredibly. I mean, here's a here's a Yale and a Harvard graduate, by the way, this is not a, this is not some backwards idiot from Mississippi. I mean, he knows he knows in his heart, he knows in his head what he's doing is ridiculous. He knows that. There's no way anyone who, who of any intelligence could do what he's doing and not know that it's ridiculous. But he's doing it just purely to try to get to the right of Donald Trump and to become sort of the anti-Trump or the replacement for Trump or the ersatz Trump or whatever terminology you want to put on it. 
uh, and and it's without a billion dollars. And it's hurt, and it's hurting his own state. It's hurting his own state. You know, I've seen that the numbers that there is, you know, there is some pushback from people in Florida, and they're not responding to this well. But I think broadly, he's fairly popular within his state. Although, as you point out, not nearly as popular as Donald Trump. I mean, if he were running against Donald Trump for governor of Florida, I think it's very clear that he would lose. <laughs> he would lose badly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know. This is all it's all interesting. I'll be very curious to see what I want to know is who on Newsom's team was setting this up. Was our old buddy Anthony York uh, on the phone to uh, to the DeSantis people kind of coordinating this? I'd love to know, you know, the backroom dealings to make all this happen. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, and this has been in, this has been in print, so I'm not giving away any confidences here. But I can tell you that, uh, despite the criticism that Newsom has taken about, you know, is he really running for president? Is he doing all this to set himself up for president? He's been very carefully and co- and closely coordinating with the Biden camp about what he does, and they are ecstatic about what he's doing. So this is not a case where yeah, he saw that too. Yeah, he's, this is not a case where he's setting him up as some as some you know shadow president to Joe Biden. That's not what's going on here. Although some people may have that uh, may have that slant and and have that interpretation, but he's been very carefully um, coordinating with the Biden camp and the Biden campaign about what he does. Uh, and this this is this is this is part of that. So um, I mean, look, you know. The presidency is not going to be open until, you know, 2028. I mean, Newsom is out of office in 2026. Doesn't mean he can't run for president because Ronald Reagan was out of office for, what, four years uh, when he when he ran for president. Uh, uh, but but, you know, that's a lifetime in politics. And um, he's got three, three, almost three and a half more years of his term to to carry carry through here in California to which he was, you know, reelected in 2022. So there's a lot of there's a lot of territory. There's a lot of ground between us now and 2028. But I will I will I will offer a gratuitous comment, if you will, um, which is that if Joe Biden's reelected, which I hope he is, uh, Kamala Harris clearly will be vice president again because she's she's part of the ticket. But no matter what happens in that interim period of time, I mean, if God forbid something happens to Joe Biden. Uh, and Kamala Harris, you know, moves up, even even if she's the sitting president, I think in 2028, she's not going to get the nomination for free. Um, There are just too many doubts about her capacity to run for president, let alone be president, to mean that she's going to get she's going to get a freebie. And remember, Al Gore in 2000, even even as the vice president for a very, very popular sitting president who, who got who got overwhelmingly reelected, he didn't get it for free either because Senator Bill Bradley <laughs> took him on. And, you know, we 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 crushed that insurgency ultimately. But but, you know, Kamala Harris, no matter what happens between 2024 and 2028, uh, in my humble opinion, uh, Kamala Harris is not going to is not going to be a, uh, is not going to be a walk. To the, to the 2028 nomination. There's going to be there's going to be a lot of competition because I mean let's face it guys she ran for president once and as I as I referenced early in this in this program did it very poorly after a very promising start and uh there's there's very little to suggest that somehow you know just by being sitting vice president that she has 
sort of up the level of her campaign skills running for president itself um, between, you know, 2019 and 2020 and now. So, I mean, God bless her. I, I honor her as the first female vice president, as the first black vice president, the first uh, Asian American vice president. I mean, she's got a lot of firsts and I, I, I am appreciative of that, but I just don't, I don't think that she has shown herself to have the kinds of political skills and communication skills that we Democrats will need. And by the way, particularly after an eight year run of the presidency, if we, if we get that, because we know you guys, you're, you're students of history, just like I am, you know, what happens after the, after eight year runs. And so we we are going to have if we if we are fortunate enough to win in 2024 and I God I hope we are or our de democracy is probably down the tubes but if we're fortunate enough to pull this off in 2024 we are going to have to have a very 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 strong candidate a very attractive candidate in 2028 to have a continuation of 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 our of our control of the White House and so take that for what it's worth <laughs> well, Gary, you know, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. And we, at the end of every episode, we do a, a thing called who had the worst week in California politics. And sometimes our guests like to chime in on that. And sometimes uh, our guests say, why don't you hang yourselves on that one? So uh, do you want to be part of that conversation or, or should we just uh, let you go now and, and Rich and I can postulate who had the worst week? I don't, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to demur. But I, I don't know that I could off the top of my head pick out who had who had the worst week. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. You know, this is a this is a very deep blue state. Democrats are in charge of everything lock, stock and barrel. That's that's both good and bad, I guess, in some ways. But uh, I think that our Democratic officeholders, to be honest, are are performing very well. I suppose if you had to pick and you put a gun to my head, I would say Dianne Feinstein. And part of the reason is what happened to Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, freezing mid-sentence and standing there like a, like a wax statue for 20 seconds. I mean, just brought back to mind this age factor in this in the U.S. Senate particularly. And Dianne, by the way, Dianne Feinstein, as you know, just turned 90 last month. Uh, so she's not 89 anymore. She's 90. And I mean, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, I I honor her again for being the first female senator from California and 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 the longest serving senator from California. But I got to tell you, it's painful to watch her back there. As you uh, and you know, we don't have to go any further than that. But it's sort of like I can't I can't watch this. I can't I can't see this. Uh, and you saw what she did the other day. She was asked to to, to vote and she launched into a little speech and then had to be reminded. I think by Senator Klobuchar. Uh, oh, just just vote. Just say I or nay. I mean, it's 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 embarrassing and it's 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 pathetic in a lot of ways. So, again, you put the gun to my head, Tim. Yeah, not not a, not a great. I know, Rich, you had a different uh, different thought, a little more. This is more campaign oriented. So this is right in your wheelhouse. We could ask what you would think if your candidate did this. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and this this is a little more lighthearted than that. Though, and we've talked about Diane Feinstein in, in the in this sex segment before. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think we all, in fact, I think we've said that before, that it's it's very difficult to watch somebody who's been such a giant in oh, yeah, yeah. political history to be 
uh, in this current state of affairs. But on a much lighter note, um, we all know that the Taylor Swift global domination tour is happening and it is maybe coming to a, a, a city near you, your city. I don't know. But <laughs> apparently, you know, she's getting ready to, to have several shows down in, the, in Southern California and a handful of California politicos have urged her to postpone those shows right. as a show of support for the striking uh, Writers Guild and act and SAG actors who are all on strike. <clears throat> Whether or not she does that is yet to be determined. But of course, one of the people urging her to do that was our current Lieutenant Governor here, Eleni Penelakis, who did this the day after posting pictures of herself at a Taylor Swift show in the Bay Area. There's already plenty of people in California who think that, you know, with a supermajority like the Democrats have, that there are a lot of rules of <clears throat> French laundry that, you know, apply to thee, but not to me. And if, when you're running for office, I think any little thing like that that can get amplified. I mean, we certainly saw how the French laundry thing impacted Gavin Newsom. Now, the COVID thing is not the same as a Taylor Swift concert, but I thought that was a really bad look. Uh, that's but a I bad would, look. I would say it was definitely a self-inflicted wound. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. I it was it was kind of amateur night to to some degree, and I think that um, in fact, you know, I, I I wrote a I wrote a column that was in that was in Cal Matters, which you might have seen a few days ago about about Kunalakis and about lieutenant governors running for governor and running for other offices go back and look take a look at it uh i'm not i have nothing against her i just think that one of the things that happens here and, and by the way you know I've, I've i've run two lieutenant governor's campaigns i was chief of staff the lieutenant governor gray davis so i have i have some knowledge about that office and um you know one of the things that we tend to assume is you know, if you've been vice president, by God, you know how to run for president. And that does that is not necessarily the case, uh, as Al Gore showed us. And we also tend to think, boy, if you've been lieutenant governor, you know, it's just another just just going up a rung one, one rung on the ladder to run for 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 governor. And that isn't not necessarily the case, the case either. And I would refer you back to to the to the to, to the name Cruz Bustamante. Um in that regard. So we'll see, you know, look, this, I mean, it's a long time to 2026, clearly, but, but when I saw what she did, it was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, it's, you, you, <laughs> it, it, it's self-inflicted wound to him is the right way to put it. But I, th I just think it, 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 besp it bespeaks a certain kind of political amateurism that, that, uh, that you wouldn't expect from somebody who's already announced that they're going to run for governor of the biggest state. Put it that way. I'm with you on that one. I, you know, we'll see if uh, how bad that wound is. But yes, that's one of those ones. Kind of, and that's the thing, Gary. It seems like such an obvious one to avoid, right? You so easily avoid it. Yeah. You yeah. have to know if you're going to run. Yeah. For for office, you do one or the other. Either either post the pictures of yourself at the concert <laughs> and you really enjoyed it. Right. And you don't send, you know, you don't then urge somebody else, you know, yeah. you urge yeah. her to not uh, yeah. do her shows or you don't go to the concert and you urge her not to do the shows, but you can't do both. Sure. And I think that's what well, people apparently you can. Oh, but, 
Well, you can. No, but but, but there's, there's another there's another there's another level and another angle here, you guys, and that is that when politicians try to engage in the popular in the popular world, basically, and and talk about stars, talk about singers, et cetera, et cetera. That's usually a mistake. You might remember this is ancient history now, but you might remember during the Clinton, the Bill Clinton uh, problems, you had Hillary Clinton, his wife, go on TV and say, you know, I'm not just like Tammy Wynette, you know, standing by my man. And boy, it pissed off a lot of people. I mean, it, it was kind of an innocent remark, but it's like, wait a minute, what is she doing? Attacking Tammy Wynette? So you have politicians, they, they, they always try to glom onto pop, popular culture because they think somehow that 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 elevates their stardom, you know, along with the people that they're talking about or even attacking. But but it's always problematic for politicians to try to glom onto popular culture, either positively or negatively, and to try to score points out of it. And, yeah, and talk about punching down, you know, like you know, that's what you have here. That's what you have here with Kunalakis. Yeah. yeah it's well, and if there's very... one thing we have learned, do not upset the Swifties. That does not matter. Whatever else you do in this life, don't upset no. the Swifties. And if you're if you're trying to convince her to not perform those concerts in L.A., there's about a million Swifties who just who just said they're going to vote for somebody else. Absolutely. I, I my best advice to politicians is stay the hell out of popular culture because you know what you're not part of it. Yeah, right. You know, I have to say, I got a pat tip here. The first person that mentioned this to me was uh, lobbyist David Quintana, who's a big pop culture music. I know fan. David well. Yeah, and David was just outraged. He's like, "How could you do? Like, what were you thinking?" It was like it was like a political malpractice to him. And uh, <laughs> I agree with him. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, Gary, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Hey, it's, it's, really it's always fun. It's always fun. Yep. Um, so often, you know, we're 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 tackling huge subjects of great import. I think. Um, I don't know if this rises to that, but I think this is a really interesting well, thing. Clearly, we're all going to be watching and seeing what what ultimately happens if and when it does get settled and 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 everything gets put into place, and we know for sure it's going to happen. We'll all be watching and um, take everything I say with a grain of salt, as usual. <laughs> Maybe us too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll have to, you know what if it does actually come to pass, we'll have to have a Capital Weekly uh, debate watch party. Yeah, yes. we'll have a recap. We'll have a recap. There you go. There you go. We'll have we'll have post game analysis. All right. I love that. I get to be Peyton Manning and Tim can be Eli. <laughs> okay. You got your on, guys. Take care. All right, Gary. We'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thank you, Gary. Bye. Bye. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.